The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read just the first three verses, but we're going to go through the entire chapter. And I want to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. This is the word of our King, of our Lord. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we ask you to take this truth that Jesus is Lord and to bury it in our souls that we would believe it and that we would live our lives in light of it, Lord. Lord, we are your church. You've gathered us. You have filled us with your Spirit. And Lord, you also, as this text teaches us, you give us gifts. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your church to see, Lord, how to use our gifts in service of our Lord for the edification of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, have you ever tried to rip a four-foot-long kitchen tile? I need to explain for you what that means. You know, you have, I have, my, my kitchen has four-foot-long tiles, and, and I've tried to do it myself and, and tile my kitchen, but when you get close to the wall, you don't need a whole tile. You need just a slender section of a whole tile, and when you make a cut, not across, but a, a, along the, the length of it, you call that a rip cut. And I have a tile saw. I can make those little cuts across at any point, but I have no idea, and I did have no idea, how to rip a four-foot-long, 48-inch section of porcelain tile. And so I Googled it, did what any person with common sense would do. And the best solution that I found was a company called Vivor. For $117, they will ship you, with free shipping, a 48-inch manual tile cutter. And on the top of their website, it says, no hassle returns. And I thought to myself, what could go wrong? Three days later, there was a huge box on my deck. Opened it up. There was no instructions inside. No idea how to use this, but you know what? I'm resourceful. I know about YouTube, and so I go to YouTube. How do you use Vivor 48-inch manual tile cutter? And there's people that have done it before. These kind people who post videos of themselves doing it. 
And so I, I watched people do it, and I thought, okay, I can do this. And so I put the first tile on it, and I measured it, and I got it exactly where it's supposed to be, and here I go. You score it, and then you bring it back up, and then you snap it, and it's just going to make a perfect little cut. And so that's what I did. Down, up, boom. Cracks it in the half. All right, there's about $12 down the drain. Let's try it one more time. Second tile. Score it, back up, put the pressure down, boom, same exact thing. Did not cut my tile. And so I thought, okay, this is not my problem. There's no instructions. I've done exactly what they tell me to do on YouTube. Good thing, no hassle returns. Am I right? Good thing. And so I began a conversation with Irene, a conversation that would last a week of emails back and forth. On September 17th, I sent her a message saying, would you, would you please instruct me on how to return uh, this piece of junk machine that you sent me? I didn't say it like that. I was very kind. And she said, well, can you, sir, send us a video of you attempting to use it? And I said, No. Because I've already wasted two expensive tiles. I'm not about to waste another one to send you a video. It doesn't work. Her response, September 18th, we are consulting. It will be one to three days. Five days later, September 23rd, she sends me a message. We recommend that you use the tile cutter correctly. At this point, I'm beginning to lose my patience. And so I respond, what about no hassle returns? It does not work. She responds later that same day, we will send you $36. So I respond, that's not sufficient. I want a full refund. I want to send it back. It does not work. She responds, I will give you two options then. I will either send you $74 or I will send you a brand new one. I don't want a brand new one, Irene. And I don't want $74. I want no hassle returns. And I want it now, please. <laughs> and so finally, Irene responded and said, fine. We will give you $117. And by the way, just keep it. <laughs> so right now, in the floor of my laundry room... There is a five-foot-long, completely useless tile cutter in the floor. And I am quite sure that my wife would appreciate it if one of you would come take it off our hands, who thinks that you can use it better. Because I have figured out an alternative way to cut the tile anyway. But it occurred to me this week, church, as I was studying 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that that tile cutter in the floor of my laundry room is actually a pretty good metaphor for a common occurrence that I see in the church. You see, there in my floor is a tool that was designed to accomplish a purpose, and yet it has not been able to accomplish that purpose. And in fact, that tool that was designed to cut tile sits idle in my house, not fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul teaches the church about spiritual gifts. You know, we've been going all the way through 1 Corinthians together. 
verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we know, we should be familiar if we've been here for this study, we know the kinds of problems that this church was having, right? They had divisions, they had selfishness, they had people in the church who were trying to set themselves apart in certain ways from the rest and and to elevate themselves on a pedestal and to lower others. And wouldn't you know that that same problem, those same problems are persisting in their understanding of the spiritual gifts. And so in correcting the problem in the church, Paul tells us that every member of the church body, every one of us, if you are a part of the church, you have been gifted supernaturally by the Holy Spirit with at least one gift and maybe multiple gifts for the purpose of serving the church. And no, I don't mean this building. For the purpose of serving the people, the body, the members. When we open up the pages of the Bible, what we realize is that the New Testament call is not for us just to show up and attend church. The New Testament call is for us to be a part of a church to the point where we are giving ourselves in service to the church. We are called to serve one another, yet for some of us, that gift that God has supernaturally given us lies dormant in a box, not being used. That's the metaphor. So what I want us to do this morning is simply go to the Lord and ask Him to show us what this means. What is a spiritual gift Who gives spiritual gifts? What are the purposes of spiritual gifts? Because at the end, I want us all to be confident to use the gifts that God has given us, to serve one another. My prayer, church, and I I hope that you'll join me in praying this, my prayer is that because of God's word today, our church would be stronger, would be more rooted in Christ would be more like Jesus in our willingness to give ourselves for one another. That's my prayer. That every single one of us who's who's a member would find our place in the body and find what God has called us to do. So the first thing I want us to do in verses 1 through 11, the first thing we see is the Lord of the gifts. Look at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Spiritual gifts. Gifts given by the Holy Spirit. That's what that means. And what's interesting is that this is not the only place in the Bible where Paul deals with this or the other apostles deal with this. Paul also has an in-depth section on spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12 verses 6 through 8 as well as in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. And by the way, Paul's not even the only apostle who talks about spiritual gifts. Peter mentions them as well. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. It's the same language. Theologian Tom Schreiner defines, he takes all of these passages to come up with a working definition of what a spiritual gift is, and this is what he comes up with. Spiritual gifts are gifts of grace 
granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Now that word edification is not a word we use a lot, but it's a word that means to build up or to strengthen. So I want you to think about that. The Bible teaches us that every single believer has been supernaturally gifted by God's Spirit with gifts that are intended to build up and strengthen the church. Two elements that are really important to that. Number one is that these gifts are given supernaturally by the Spirit. And number two, that these gifts are given for the purpose of building up the local church. This community where we meet, where we gather. You see, it's teachings like this that lead me to conclude that there is no such thing as faithful New Testament Christianity without being a part of a local church. Like, there's just no way to do what Paul's calling the church to do here unless you're plugged in and committed to a people. There's no way to do it, church. Listen. Whatever notion of like church on the iPod and and church on the internet and whatever other notions are swimming out there, I want you to understand something, that those notions are foreign to the Bible. That the Bible only recognizes the church as real flesh and blood people in covenant with one another. That's the only thing. Under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that is what the church is, filled by his spirit. And there's a list of them. If you took all of these lists and you said, all right, tell me, what what are the spiritual gifts? He's going to talk about some of them, but I'm going to give you all the lists from the whole Bible. Apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, discernment, teaching, exhorting, miracles, healing, service, leadership, tongues, interpretation of tongues, giving, faith, and mercy. And and I don't think that's exhaustive. I don't think Paul ever sits down and says, okay, I'm going to write down every single gift that's ever been given. I don't think that's the point. I think there's probably other gifts that aren't even in these lists that we have in this church. It's important. In fact, it's so important that Paul says this in The first verse that we're looking at. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want y'all to be uninformed. You need to be informed about this. Church, listen, you're here today. In, In the providence of God, you came to Ashton Community Church on October 8th. And the Lord has ordained that we hear a sermon about spiritual gifts. This is not an accident. Just like Paul did not want the Corinthians to be uninformed, the Lord does not want us to be uninformed. And the first thing I want us to see that Paul is really adamant about is that the spiritual gifts are connected to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and may we never disconnect them. Look at what he says. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, when you were unbelievers, when you were living your rebellious lifestyle, when you were worshiping other gods, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Why does Paul start here? 
Paul starts here because he wants to draw a contrast between a dead religion where we are worshiping lifeless things and being led by lifeless things and Christianity, the one true religion, where we are being led by the Spirit of the living God. And Paul says you've got to recognize that there's a distinction. And why is this distinction important? Because if we're worshiping mute idols that cannot speak to us, that cannot really lead us, then we are just going to make everything up as we go. We are really the ones in control when we're, we're worshiping false gods. But if we're worshiping Jesus, if we're worshiping the living God, then we are being led by a God who speaks to us, church. Which means what he has to say to us is what guides the way we think about everything. His word determines our lives. You see, what we see and what I think is happening in Corinth is that you have members in Corinth who are emphasizing the showy gifts in order to exalt themselves, right? The people who have gifts that get up on the stage with the microphone, right? Those people, the people who can speak in tongues and they have these prophecies and they're able to say these things and people look at them and go, man, that's amazing. You're really gifted. And they're using those gifts to elevate themselves above others in the church. And Paul is correcting all of that. He is saying, no, 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 you are not the Lord of the gifts. You do not get to choose which gifts you have or how they are used. Jesus is Lord of the universe. Everything must be submitted to him. You're no longer following mute idols where you get to call the shots. You're now led by the Spirit. The Lordship of Jesus is the banner you hang over your life. And it's important that we understand in verse 3 because it's kind of funky. You know, you read that and you go, well, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. I mean, look at it again. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And we recognize that there are people who say Jesus is Lord who do not really believe that Jesus is Lord, right? That's a reality. I think it's important that we understand the way Paul is using words here. You see, in the Jewish mind, there's a connection between the heart and the mouth. So when Paul talks about saying Jesus is Lord, he means, he intends living your life. Your heart is submitted to Jesus as Lord. Your mouth is the mouthpiece of the heart. No one can submit their lives to Jesus as Lord unless the Spirit of God is at work in their hearts. You need the Spirit to be a Christian. That's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you're not a Christian, you do not have the Spirit. A Christian is someone who says, Jesus is Lord and lives with Jesus as Lord because we believe that Jesus died for us to win us, to reconcile us to God. We believe that Jesus is King. That's what a Christian is. Paul is getting to the fundamental question of how do you measure spiritual maturity? And there's an answer that the Corinthian church are buying into, and Paul says it's false. The church in Corinth, there are members of this church who are measuring spiritual maturity according to showiness of gifts. 
So if I can get up on the stage and, and proclaim a prophecy from God, then I must be elevated higher than other people in the church. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. The measurement of spiritual maturity is always submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Joe and I met in college ministry in Lexington at the University of Kentucky. And when I did college ministry for about a decade, and when we were doing college ministry, there was always a group of students around who were fascinated by like supernatural miracles and gifts of healing and all these things. And by the way, if God wants to do any of that at any time, bring it on, right? We pray for him to heal and, and all these things, and he can. And I just want you to understand that there's been times in history where God's done those things in abundance, and there's been times in history where God, for his own reasons, has chosen not to do those things. So we don't really know what God is doing. But what was always fascinating to me about college ministry was that so many of those students who were fascinated by these supernatural gifts were not living their lives in submission to Jesus as Lord. So many of them refused to go to church. So many of them were coming to me for counsel about immoral relationships that they were in. But they wanted to talk about these things, these, these prophecies, these healings, and all these other things. And what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 12 is that the Spirit, if, if you want to discern the work of the Spirit, find people who are submitting to Jesus as Lord. The Spirit always leads in the direction of submission to Christ. Always, without a, without a doubt. This is the theology of the Spirit that John gives us in the Gospel of John. The Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you are not submitting to Jesus as Lord and King of your life, you are not living by the Spirit. This is a vital corrective for a lot of our modern day notions of spirituality. Who do we see as the spiritually mature person today? Think about that with me. Isn't it always the charismatic personality, the influencer, the person who stands out from the crowd, the celebrity, the person who has a lot of followers, the Christian Taylor Swifts of the world? Right, those are the mature people. And, and, and what are the mantras of, of that version of spirituality? Well, let me give you a few of them. Follow your heart. Have you ever heard that mantra? If you haven't heard that mantra, you've been living under a rock, church. <laughs> Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Live your truth as if you have a version of truth that's different from what's really true. Live your truth. Prioritize your happiness. And usually that last one, because we hear that and we go, well, why not prioritize my happiness? But often when we talk about prioritizing our happiness, we, we take that as an absolute and we, we use that to disregard things that God has clearly revealed for us. And then Paul in this section says, no, 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 wipe all that away. None of that is going to lead where you think it's going to lead. Following your heart is not going to lead you to flourish. There is a Lord who has created you. 
He has made the universe, and it is only when you are in submission to him that you will find the purpose for which you were made. It is only when you come and submit your life to Jesus that you will find that in him is joy forevermore. And so Paul says, no, if you want to find your purpose, if you want to find the, the, the banner to hang over your life, throw away, follow your heart, and replace it with Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Listen, church, this goes for every one of us. Whether you're on ministry staff or a pastor or a deacon, wherever you are, if you are a member of this church, your life is fundamentally about submission to Jesus Christ. That is what we're trying to do every day. And we are thankful that the Spirit He gives us leads in that direction. And so Paul starts there because he wants us to understand the spiritual gifts underneath that banner. If you want to understand these gifts, you've got to understand that Jesus is Lord of them. And so then in verses 4-11, through 11, he shows us how that impacts the way we think. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. Notice the Trinitarian language that Paul is using there. You see that? There's a variety of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. There's a variety of service, but it is the same Lord. Lord, there's Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, the same Father who empowers them all and everyone. You may have all kinds of different abilities, but there's one God who gave them to you. They all come from the same God. To each, verse 7, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the common good of the church. The gifts are given to bless the church, to build up the church. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For the common good, We've already seen in 1 Corinthians, as we've been studying it together, the importance of edification, of building up. The end is to serve others. I just want to say this real quick. Serving other people in the church is a good enough reason to do something without any other motivation. I know that you're like, some of you are like, well, that's obvious. Some of you are like, that sounds completely contradictory to everything I've ever heard. Because we're told that if you don't feel like doing it, it's not authentic. But let me tell you something. It's super authentic when you say, I might not feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because you know what Jesus teaches us about those feelings of authenticity? When he's in the garden crying out to God, would you take this cup from me? That he didn't feel like doing it in that moment, but he did it anyway. Because that's what love is. It is good enough to just say, I am going to serve somebody. 
You know what usually happens when we do that? We usually feel a lot of satisfaction at the end, don't we? There's something good and right about that. And notice how Paul's emphasizing the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 11. All these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one, each member, individually, as he wills. God gives the gifts according to his discretion. And so some of you, some of us go, well, I don't really like the gift I got. And Jesus says, well, I'm sorry, that's the one you got. You know, I, and, I, and I've seen this, right? I, I've seen people who really badly want the gift of teaching or something. And, you know, we give them opportunities to teach and we just conclude, hey, that's not your gift. But the Lord knows what he's doing. And, and the plan is to edify the church. And so we, we submit to his decisions. But here's the second thing I want us to see. The purposes of the gifts. Verses 12 through 26. There's three. I'm going to move quickly. The first one is unity. Look at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized. I love this. We were all baptized in one spirit into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One spirit, one body. Now Paul introduces here the analogy of the human body. And he says, just as you have a body, and you have two hands and two feet, a nose and eyes and ears and a mouth and whatever other parts, like we could go on, I'm not going to get all intricate on you. Not very scientific but all the parts of your body have a function, right? And if any one of those parts quits working, it affects the whole body. So this analogy, Paul says that is the way it is in the church. In fact, Paul uses stronger language than that. Look at what Paul says, actually. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Think about that. Some of us, we've read this verse so many times that that doesn't wow us anymore. Paul does not separate the identity of Jesus from the identity of his church. He's describing the church, but he says, so it is with Christ. If you are a part of the body, you are a part of the body of Christ. You are united to Jesus in an organism with other living people, and you all have different functions to make that thing work. That's what he's saying. <coughs> I want you to notice the diversity in the unity, because that's the point. There's a variety. There's many members, but it's one body. You, you got to think about this because I know some of you cheer for UK, some of you cheer for Louisville. I always use that one because it's like an easy kind of just to show you how, how different we are, you know? Because when we come here, whatever differences we have, and those, that's a silly one, I admit, but whatever differences we have, we set aside because there's one Christ. So, so it doesn't really matter what your political opinions are. It doesn't really matter what your preferences are, what part of the country you're from, or what country you're from. It doesn't really matter if you 
rolled up in here in a Rolls Royce? Which I don't think any of you did. Or if you rolled up here in a, I don't even know, a hoopty. But whatever you, you pulled up in, right, we, we walk into this room and it just doesn't matter because we have Christ. And Christ is the basis for our unity. Listen, church, we can't make anything else the basis for our unity. There are churches that try to make other things the basis for our unity. So we go, oh, we're all, we all love the King James Bible here. That's not a good reason. That's not a good foundation for our unity. We only sing this kind of music here. That's not a good foundation for our unity. You know, whatever it is, it has to be Jesus. Jesus is the rock, the foundation. He is the only foundation. Jesus says, upon this rock you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's talking about the confession of his lordship. Unity. And then he uses this baptism language. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What's interesting here is that he's talking about spiritual baptism. When you believe the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit. But, but notice that that baptism in the spirit is into the body, into a church, into a flesh and blood people where there's Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. In fact, water baptism is not disconnected from this. Water baptism is the outward expression of what's already happened here with the spirit. So when we baptize someone in the water, we are giving outward form to them being baptized in the spirit into the body. We're doing that demonstrably in a way that we can all see it. Listen to me, church. We have to take unity seriously because Jesus takes unity seriously. To seek to divide the church is to seek to undo what the Spirit has done. To seek to divide the church is to undermine the very work of the gospel that brought us together. This is why when, when a member comes forward and joins the church, they sign a membership covenant, and one of the commitments is, I will guard the unity of the church because Jesus cares about the unity of the church. We have to care. We have to be united on the foundation of Christ. But here's the second purpose of the gifts, diversity. Verses 14 through 20. I'm going to read it. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? This is like some kind of sci-fi thing that Paul's got going on, right? I can see like the next Netflix, like the future, there's going to just be one big eye walking around. But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. 
If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul's talking about diversity. You know, we hear that word a lot. Listen, diversity in the church is not just a recommendation. It is a necessity. It is impossible for a special interest group to accurately display the manifold glory of Jesus in their gathering. The only way the glory of Christ gets displayed in its multifaceted glory is when the body of people that he has ransomed are diverse. Because then we see how great and diverse our God is. God doesn't speak with your accent. His accent transcends and embodies all the accents of the world. A long, long time ago, in a different time and place, a lady wanted to meet with me. You know, when you're in ministry and someone says to you, hey, I want to meet with you, you immediately go to all the worst kind of ideas. Oh, I wonder what I did. What did I say? And she came into my office, and I was right. She was upset. But it really didn't have anything to do with me. She was upset because other people, she was really into this one ministry, like really into it, like giving a lot of time and effort into this one ministry. And she was upset because other people in the church weren't as passionate about this ministry as she was. And I sat there and thought for a minute about how to respond. And I finally just said, you know, let me tell you, a, a bunch of ministries that other people in our church are interested in. And I just started naming things that other people were doing. Volunteering at the pregnancy center. Um, missions, going on international mission trips. People going to care for poor people. Caring for single moms. You know, I just, I knew, I mean, there, as many members as there are, I just kept on naming them. And I said to her, are you interested as, in passion, as passionately as all those people are in their ministries? And she said, no, of course not. And that's the idea that Paul's getting at here. It takes diversity, church, to accomplish the mission. If all of us had the same gifts, if all of us had the same interests, if all of us had the same abilities, we would not be able to do what God calls us to do. And I want you to hear something, too. The pastor is not the embodiment of all these gifts. I don't have all these gifts. There are many of you, all of you, are gifted in ways that I could never dream of being gifted. I would argue I'm very limited in my gifts, actually. It takes the whole church to do what God calls us to do. It takes you pouring yourself into that which you are most interested in. And you know what? There's going to be other people who come alongside of you and join you. But it's impossible for the whole church to be equally involved as you are. They're doing other things. Paul also recognizes how tempting it is for us to compare ourselves to others and feel either superior or inferior. And I've seen both. I've seen people go, well, they don't do what I'm doing. And so we kind of exalt ourselves and puff our chests out. But I think more commonly, and I hear this a lot, people look at others and go, I don't have those gifts. I don't know how I can benefit anybody around here. Church, that might sound like humility, but I want you to hear me. That's really pride. 
When we say that we don't have gifts and God's word clearly tells us he has given us gifts, we are not being humble. We are so focused on ourselves that we have drowned out what God's word clearly says. And that is not humility. That's pride. The Lord has gifted you. We've got to use them. And then finally, interdependence. Verses 21 through 26, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You see that? Every part of the body is got a purpose. Have you ever had a toothache? It debilitates you. Right? As I get older, there's parts of me aching that I never thought possible, and I recognize that I can't do anything. I, I played seven games of pickleball Friday and thought I was going to go into a coma, a medical coma. I'm not kidding. Ask Brandon Johnson. He was there. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Paul is here is going into this imagery and he's saying, notice how we, we dress our unpresentable parts with glory and honor. The, the point that he's making and he's getting at, he gets to it in verse 24, which are more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, there's unity again, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, oh church, if we could get this, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are one. We share everything. If you have a reason to rejoice, we rejoice with you. If you have a reason to grieve, we grieve with you. If you are suffering, we suffer with you. If you are honored, we celebrate you being honored. If you are reviled, we are reviled with you. We stand and we fall together. I can just hear it now, though. There's always that voice, and I've heard it my whole life in churches. I just don't feel that close to people. Listen to me. Your emotions are not the basis of reality. Our oneness with each other is an objective fact bought by the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ has done it. Our goal is to bring our emotions in line with the objective reality. We are one because God tells us we are one. If we do not feel like one, then we need to ask the Lord to reveal in our hearts what is keeping us from experiencing that. The objective fact triumphs over the emotions. And we apply this in all kinds of other ways. Some of you say, well, I don't feel forgiven. And then you, I meet with you and we plead with you. You should feel forgiven because Jesus has won it. He has paid for your sins. Believe it, believe it. Bring your emotions in line with what's real. And that's true for the church too. God, I just don't feel close to these people. Well, maybe you should serve them. Maybe you should... Make an effort to get closer to them. Finally, and lastly, use your gifts. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, verse 27, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but look at verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. The more excellent way, church, is the way of love. The, ine- the inevitable question that I always get, how do I know how I'm gifted? And can I discourage you from doing something? Can I discourage you this morning from going home and getting on the internet and looking up a spiritual gift online inventory and taking the test and then coming back next week and self-reporting what your gifts are? Please don't do it. Nikki and I played around the other day with one of those like online assessments to kind of see what your strengths and weaknesses are. And I noticed something that I always do when I do these. I don't answer according to truth. I answer according to what I want the truth to be, right? Like, I want to be gifted in all these ways, and I know where these questions are going, so, yep, I'm good at that one, I'm good at that one. And then my wife's sitting beside me, and I look at her, and she goes, (laughs) so, you know, she's always the honest one. Listen, this is how you find out. The whole point of this passage and what comes after it in 13 is that Christ calls us to serve others and to give ourselves in love for others. And listen, if you commit to pouring your life into serving others in the church, your gifts are going to come out. They're going to be manifested Service isn't optional. Take your gifts out of the box and use them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gifting us. Lord, it is not just as we don't deserve your mercy and the grace that brings us into Christ, Lord. We do not deserve the mercy of being gifted by your Spirit to serve. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you equip your church to do everything you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that we would respond with faith and obedience to our Lord, our King, the one who loves us, the one who died to save us, the one who indwells us by his Spirit, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.